Welcome to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast, hosted by the NextGen Advisors. Accelerate your success with insights from a multidisciplinary team of healthcare experts as they discuss an array of topics. These timely discussions can help you better navigate the challenges of running your ambulatory care practice. Here is your host. Hello, this is Dr. Marty Lustick, Senior Vice President and Principal with NextGen Advisors. Today, we're going to discuss evolving issues in contracting with payers for organizations pursuing an integrated care model for behavioral health and primary care. I'm joined today by Javier Favela, NextGen Healthcare's VP of Solutions for Behavioral Health Market Strategy. Before we get started, Javi, can you just tell us a little about yourself and your current role? Yeah, thanks, Marty. Uh, first off, welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Javier Favela, and I am the Vice President of Solutions for Behavioral Health and Integrated Care at NextGen Healthcare. Um, I've actually been in the behavioral health and integrated care space for now well over 20 years. Most of my career, I worked for a large community mental health organization uh, who actually evolved into becoming an integrated care provider out of Arizona. I was the chief financial and operating officer and eventually became the interim chief executive officer. Um, after that, I moved my way into the technology space, really focused on innovation and transformation in the behavioral health care space. It was really important for me to help tilt technology and solutions to meet the needs of, of community-based providers. I've worked with provider organizations all over the country, focused on financial sustainability models for healthcare integration, interoperability with an emphasis on consent management for 42 CFR Part 2, uh, which tends to be a challenge in behavioral health as it pertains to interop, and also working with organizations on clinical, financial, and operational changes that are necessary to be really relevant in the next new normal of healthcare. So very happy to join you today, Marty. Great, Javi. I look forward with that background to uh, hearing your comments on today's topic. I'd like to start today's discussion by setting some context. So Javi, it seems to me that in the alternative payment space, that behavioral health has really lagged behind primary care. Uh, what's your perspective on this? You know, it's interesting, uh, Marty, that despite significant movement when it comes to performance-based um, and alternative payment models, behavioral health is still trailing the rest of healthcare domains, uh, especially as it pertains to value-based reimbursement and contracting. When you look at the data today, about 45% of specialty provider organizations in behavioral health and human services have some form of value-based reimbursement or performance-based contract. But when you look at the primary care side, you know, and you compare that data, about 72% of primary care organizations are in some type of VBR or VBC arrangement. When you take a deep dive and you actually look at the big payers and where we're at today in behavioral health, so looking at Medicare, Medicaid, and employers, they predominantly rely on either the National Committee on Quality Health Assurance or what we know as NCQA standards, uh, Health Effectiveness Data Information Set, or uh, also known as HEDIS measures, or their own custom data set. And so it's really, you know, you know, and this could be even things like CMS stars, 
And this is really focused on assessing the quality of the health plans and accountable care organizations. The health plans and ACOs, which you know, over 90% are really focused on improving the big picture payer met metrics, not focus on the consumer, but focus on payer metrics. But one key question is to whether those measures really work for the consumers with complex conditions in behavioral health. Uh, and specifically to behavioral health, uh, when you, uh, you know, when you look at that data set, there's a limited number of NCQA or HEDIS or STARS measures that actually apply to this consumer population. And when you dig into that data, that, that performance isn't great. Uh, it's certainly a work in progress. Uh, when you look at some of the data and, and, and guides, health plan performance on the behavioral health measures has been somewhat mixed. Some of the measures showing performance gains and others showing performance declines. You know, yeah. we, we've definitely, in behavioral health, we're seeing a, a heavy focus on what is really, um, you know, primary care metrics. One of the important things to think about as you're, as we're looking at performance metrics is that provider executives need to keep in mind those HEDIS measures. And it, it does, uh, on the surface, appear somewhat disconnected in the behavioral health system. And when you look yeah. at a specialty population, like persons with serious mental illness, as an example, there's an associated increased risk for things like type 2 diabetes. Some of that partly due to adverse metabolic effects of antipsychotic medications. And so measuring adherence to national diabetes screening guidelines for patients taking antipsychotic medications is critical to this particular population. Yeah. So in, interesting. There's almost a bit of a chicken and egg question here around behavioral health lagging behind primary care. Is it because there haven't been good measures to base the payments on or are there or has there not been investment in the measures because there just hasn't been the focus on behavioral health i think it's probably a little bit of both yeah and i think I another agree. big challenge in alternative payment models is that it essentially there no matter what the specific construct of the payment scheme is it's based on some combination of cost management and quality performance and the other big challenge in behavioral health, you mentioned this issue of antipsychotics causing diabetes, is that a lot of the cost impact of behavioral health management is actually on the physical health side of the spectrum. So we'll get into it more, I'm sure, the attribute, some of the attribution issues, but constructing a risk model for behavioral health organizations that accounts for the impact on non-behavioral health services has been a challenge that I think payers are still and others are still struggling with. Yeah, I think just traditionally in the behavioral health space, organizations have been accustomed to a fee-for-service model, right? So we, we can certainly assign, you know, cost units to services but value has been somewhat difficult to actually define uh, in this right. space. And I think that that is one big hurdle where there's opportunity with some of the first, second, and third movers in the healthcare integration space to help shape what some of these metrics and performance-based contracts should look like. So that, that's a great segue, because now that we've kind of set some of the background, 
I'd like to uh, get your thoughts more on sort of where, where we're starting to see shifts in both payment schemes and performance metrics for these providers. You know, you did mention that behavioral health providers do have some level of performance-based pay, but from what I've seen, most of it to date has been sort of, yeah, you get extra payment if you close a gap in care. Yeah, um, but they actually haven't had performance targets set that they had to meet, at least not until recently. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about what do you see happening more recently, both in terms of the payments and the metrics. Yeah, well, there there's some progressive states that have certainly, you know, with healthcare integration being a key focus, and down to the managed care level, down to the provider level, where putting more emphasis on value versus quantity, right? And so you have places like, you know, Arizona, Washington, Oregon, you have some big movements that are happening in New York. Uh, You've got some changes that are happening in California where there is more emphasis on, you know, providing better quality, better value to the patients, members, and consumers that organizations are seeing. What we've seen in some of those more progressive states is is what I had said earlier, is that they are still somewhat heavily weighted towards primary care. So HEDIS, NCQA, CMS STARS. One thing I'd like to just message to executives that are listening is there should be some some pretty significant as an organization focused on the data set that an organization is looking at. HEDIS is uh, one thing that we're seeing um, be, be a heavy em- emphasis by pairs. It also, you know, there has been some emphasis with behavioral health with the, the HEDIS measures. You know, once a provider, uh, organization's executive team understands the perspective of, you know, the consumer and potential health plan customer, the next key step for the team, the executive team to know is where do they stand today and how incremental improvements can be made from a partnership with the payer, with the consumer, but is really built on data. Uh, and when we look at data, the provider organization data and health plan data is key to developing a value-based contract that works for the organization and the consumer. It's a key to put organizational performance in context and create a narrative of how the provider organization services can really improve specific performance metrics and value to its consumers. And the more you're able to tie that data to improving quality and outcomes and value to the consumer, the better off the organization is going to be. I think that's a great point, Javi. And I tie to that the just encouragement that because the payers haven't totally figured out how to move into the behavioral health space yet, that there's opportunities within, particularly at the state level, for our the providers in our audience to actually have an impact on the state policies on how those payers actually build these programs yeah. because it's far from fully baked at this point and i think that creates opportunities for people as well as the challenges of not really knowing exactly what the future holds can you talk a little bit about specifically the rapid expansion of ccbhc's and how that's affecting and likely to affect going forward this whole issue of alternative payment models? 
Yeah, I think that's a it's an important topic. So I work with a lot of providers across the country and the topic that keeps executives up at night, right? You think about labor shortages, you think about services that are being rendered that are not funded. Financial sustainability is is a key topic, right? When we've surveyed members across the country, organizations across the country, financial sustainability always surfaces to the top. When you think about you know, certified community behavioral health clinics, right? And the payment model, the prospective payment model or alternative payment model system. And also, which gets us a little bit into the federally qualified health center, organizations see that as a potential opportunity for financial sustainability, where services that they're rendering are not traditionally covered in a fee-for-service arrangement. So organizations that have moved into an integrated or whole person approach to care are able to actually put in place things like health navigators, the right case management in place, direct service staff to help engage and activate their members. And I think this is really critical when you move away from volume and focus on value and better patient outcomes, you need a financial reimbursement model to support that. And I think the CCBHC model, as well as the FQHC model with a prospective payment system, really helps them do that. You know, some of the first and second movers in the behavioral health space that I've seen that I've worked with, some of the more progressive states they uh, where they've shifted into healthcare integration at first before the CCBHC expansion, FQHC was their path to financial sustainability in an integrated care model. Uh, With the expansion of CCBHC, we're seeing organizations actually, uh, this is now kind of their first step into being able to fund those types of services that help activate and engage their patients in a whole person approach to care with a long-term vision of FQHC designation Uh, as the vision long-term, but a lot of this has to do with financial sustainability because at the payer level, there are a lot of services that are needed to really truly activate and engage patients to have an impact on value, better outcomes, reduced costs that are currently not being reimbursed in the traditional fee-for-service model. Right. So interesting because, you know, from my perspective, having been spent a lot of years in the health plan environment on that side of the fence, so to speak. The big step forward with the CCBHCs to me is is that it acknowledges the cost of a set of services that you just described that hadn't been reimbursed previously. The cynical side of me looks at that from a health plan perspective and says, yeah, they're paying for it up front in the early years, but at some point, the health plans will want to move to a transfer some of the overall cost risk to the providers mm-hmm. as they have through ACO type agreements. And when that happens, the cost of the CCBHC attributes will be built into that. And then the risk will be transferred to the providers so that they'll have to manage the efficiency of providing those services going forward. Yeah. So I wouldn't from a provider leadership perspective, I wouldn't relax and say, oh, the CCBHCs are going to keep us whole, you know, for a generation because it's going to transition again, particularly as states move to get the MCOs in the middle of 
these arrangements and actually have the contracts be through the MCOs and not directly with the state? Yeah, I think when, so I've spent quite a bit of time working with payers across the country. When you look at the frontiers of value-based care, most of the trajectory of the payers don't have the behavioral health and integrated provider community at the full at risk frontier. It usually most of the trajectory kind of stops in that level three, which is a partial at risk. But I totally agree with you. Um, I yeah. think what we have to figure out, and we're seeing some, you know, you, you know, some changes that are happening with states. But you think about value-based care and partial at-risk contracts where data is absolutely important, right? You need outside data sources. You you need claims data where attribution is assigned, where you can receive uh, cost data to be able to do risk stratification, identify your high-risk, high-cost members. These are the members within an organization, these high-risk, high-cost members that actually have to be activated and engaged. When you look at the data, right, the, you know, 50% of the healthcare spend is represented by, you know, 5% of people that are, you know, are considered high-risk and high-cost. And so I think it's really important when you're thinking about interoperability and attribution, that data is really important to be able to do some of what payers are expecting in terms of value-based care and, you know, value-based reimbursement contracts or performance-based contracts. So you talked a little bit earlier, Javi, about some of the states that are kind of more leading edge and moving into the value-based care space. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about where they're headed in terms of things like solving for the attribution issue, mm -hmm. incorporating social determinants, coming up with different performance measures, things along those lines? And Basically, you know, where integrated payments, care payments going? Yeah, I think to that point, provider organizations and executives need to kind of renew their focus on getting back into that first position with health plans and creating opportunities for financial alignment, increasing revenues, and ultimately really honed in on achieving outcomes. To to the an example that 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 you you know that you're looking for, you you can look at New York right now. There's a you know, a proposal on the table to help try to remediate or resolve member, member attribution because today, right, the primary care, typically the primary care provider uh, has assigned attribution with the health plan or with the payer is really trying to remediate that attribution issue where the behavioral health or community-based provider also has assigned attribution. We see it in behavioral health where, you know, you have a designated health home your designated health home where you get the attribution designation, but that is such a limited number of providers, right? Your FQHCs have the designation. So you see an example of New York where they're working, you know, with the provider community to help resolve uh, assigning attribution to be able to give the data that's necessary to, to do things like risk stratification, care management, uh, and patient activation so that they can truly see who they're you know, high cost and, and high risk members are. We have in in some states, we've overcome the barrier where we work directly uh, with the organization, with the payer on being able to work to resolve some of the governance issue as it pertains to behavioral health, as well as the attribution. So there are ways to go about doing it, but I think we're a long way from 
resolving it across the country to make sure that attribution is truly assigned to the providers that are actually seeing the patient that are having an impact on quality and care. Yeah, I think this issue of multiple attribution, um, having been on the health plan side where there's such resistance to attributing one member of the health plan to multiple providers, that these proposals and these steps that you've described where it's already beginning to happen, that the same patient can be attributed to multiple places is really critically important from the provider's perspective. If you're a behavioral health organization that's already pursuing integration, you know that a large portion of your behavioral health patients still don't get their primary care through your providers and your organization and vice versa. Some of your primary care patients probably don't get all of their behavioral health at your organization. And yet without the more sophisticated attribution models, you won't be able to get insight into all the, uh, the journey that your patients are taking, no matter how they touch you in order to maximally impact their care and to get credit for the value that you bring to them. So yep. I think these are really important shifts that are sort of setting the foundation for alternative payments in the future. Uh, Javi, I'll give you a chance for one last comment, and then I think our time's getting near the end here. Yeah, I think one last comment is um, is to put some emphasis on the 1115 waivers. If you're listening to this in your state and what's being submitted to the federal government, a lot of these strategies are designed to fill identified gaps within the community, specialty population like the homeless population, ex expand on existing evidence-based practices. Um, but really focus on reducing barriers to care and improving social determinants of health. And a lot of these waivers and health information technology initiatives within the state are really helping infuse the right system, the right capital into helping organizations really shift to a, a more of an integrated or whole person approach to care getting back to that quadruple aim with reducing costs, improving care, and reducing health disparities in the system. It's really important that, that you put some emphasis on what is happening in your state as it pertains to those waiver programs. Well, thanks with that. I'd like to thank uh, Javi Favela for joining me today and sharing uh, your thoughts on this really important topic. And thanks to all of you and our audience for tuning in. This is Dr. Marty Lustig with NextGen Advisors. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast, hosted by the NextGen Advisors. Never miss an episode by subscribing at nextgen.com slash podcast. To see a list of products and services tailored for ambulatory care practices, visit nextgen.com.